Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. Well, join, uh, welcome for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics, and we have a very tough topic today. Um, with me is Michael Volpe, an investigative reporter who has paid particular attention to a number of uh, court cases and medical situations and uh, done some extensive investigation. The situation that we're going to be talking about today is the case of, and help me with pronouncing this, Michael, um, it's the uh, Sonomi children. The Simone children, correct. Simone, okay. Um, and this is a case in Michigan. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a unique case, but it's unique in that it did get a lot of publicity. Uh, in this case, the uh, judge uh, had three children in front of her during a particularly contentious divorce, and the children said that they would not go meet their father for lunch or see their father because they had seen him be abusive and, and mean. The judge said their father was a wonderful man and that they were just being obnoxious children, and so if they didn't agree to see their father, they were going to go to a little uh, juvenile detention. And the children, mm-hmm. ages 9, at the time, 9, 11, and 15, did in fact get shipped off to juvenile detention, and the story actually deteriorates from there. Welcome, Michael. You have spent a number of months studying this particular situation. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm. What brought your attention to this particular case? Actually, the the reason I initially looked at the case was as I was writing my book, Bully to Death, uh, one of the chapters in my book is about the media and how the media covers these cases. And as I was writing the book, um, this this case blew up and – the way the media has covered this case is actually counterintuitive to in general where they just ignore these cases. So I initially wanted to put the case into my book to show an example of uh, like how it goes against the mean that this was one case where, uh, where the judge's decision just made so little sense that it blew up and all of the media covered it. Though, as you'll see some of the, if you buy my book, you see some of the examples I think are even more egregious. But originally, I saw, you know, originally I was just reading it like everybody else. And uh, and I eventually found activists who who knew people and then had documents. And then I, I started covering the case. Started covering the case, I think, late August of last year uh, in detail. And I've, since I covered three other cases involving this judge, Lisa Gorsica, and a couple of other cases involving the county family court system outside of Lisa Gorsica. And uh, when you say it's not unusual, it's specifically not unusual, not only in her courtroom, but just in courtrooms in that county. And then beyond that in courtrooms all around America, but specifically not just in her courtroom, in the courtroom of her colleagues, this is the sort of thing that goes on. Not specifically sending three kids to juvenile hall, but uh, number one, lack of due process, and then more importantly, uh, downplaying or ignoring allegations of abuse and turning it around and giving the alleged abuser uh, either full custody or just a lot more leverage than you would expect someone where there's there's a strong amount of evidence of abuse. And in this case, like in my opinion, the evidence is overwhelming that Omer Simone is an abuser, and the court is just ignoring it, or they were, not anymore. Well, I think there are still plenty of courts around this country that are ignoring it. In this particular situation, it's no longer being ignored. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of this case. You talked about when it came mm-hmm. to your attention, but basically mm-hmm. um, this this 
contentious divorce went on, and then it became uh, particularly media-worthy after this Judge Garcia uh, made these rather egregious statements to the student, to the to the the kids. Um, Not just I think, the statements, you know, but just. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let yeah, me finish. Yeah, Go ahead. and and I mean, she basically said, "Oh, the the kid, the oldest kid, said, well, you know, I've seen him hit my mother, and I'm not going to talk to him." And the judge mm-hmm. said that he was just defiant and contemptuous, and that he, his father, was in fact a great man. That's what got mm-hmm. to me. How the right, heck that's what got to you. Father's a- Right, that's what got you. I think what got you most people is that they were sent to juvenile hall for refusing lunch with their father. Uh, I, I want to yes, say one yes. thing. You called it a contentious divorce. In general, this idea that a divorce is contentious, uh, it suggests that parties are warring. That happens. I'm not saying that there aren't people who get so bitter at the end of their marriage that, that their divorce becomes bitter. And these are generally good people who just hate each other so much. That happens, but that's actually a very small amount. That's how the, the media portrays it. These so-called contentious divorces, there's an abusive personality and there's the victim. And the abusive personality turns it into a contentious divorce because they can no longer abuse that person in their marriage, so now they abuse that person in their divorce. So this idea is a contentious divorce. It's suggested that there are warring parties. And that, like I said, I think happens in the minority of the time. In most cases, in a quote-unquote contentious divorce, probably have an abusive personality. Now, that doesn't mean physically necessarily. It certainly could be. It can be emotional and psychological. And a woman can be abusive just like a man. But um, when you see a contentious divorce, what people should consider, there's probably an abusive personality in there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good point, and um, you know that that the choice of our words. I I was reading an article yesterday that said that mm-hmm. when we report um, when we report things like domestic violence, we say mm-hmm. things like alleged abuser, mm-hmm. um, and alleged is a is a a term used in court. We don't have to use it. And I think right. that the article that I read said we should say reported abuser. He's a reported abuser because that carries right. a different message than alleged abuser. Um, I think and, and on, I, on the other I, side, on the other side, a great example is that d- divorce with Bobby Flay and his and his ex-wife no. now Stephanie March. That was very contentious for like three months and they were in the media throwing out accusations against each other. And then after six months, they just settled. So, yeah. you know, those were though that's a great example of two relatively decent people who were just bitter with each other, and that's not a contentious divorce. And then, you know, they're throwing out accusations for three months, and then three months later, it's settled. Settled, and you know, Bobby Slay's worth tens of millions of dollars. Do you know how difficult it is to settle with that much money on the line? That's yeah. what I mean. Though that's sort of like the what what we. Th- what we think of a contentious divorce, that was a contentious divorce for six months. Yeah. That's not contentious because uh, you yeah. didn't have an abusive personality on either side. Um, you know, I wrote an article in 2015 for, a web, for an organization called Capital Research Center, and one of the women I quoted said, people don't, don't perpetually argue about silver. If there is this quote-unquote contentious divorce, that means there's some sort of abuse, psychopathy, and that sort of a thing, and that's what's probably going on in a, in a quote unquote contentious divorce. In in the con, the kind of contentious divorce that Stephanie March and Bobby Flay had, you probably will have a settlement pretty quickly because these are two people who are bitter, and the bitterness just needs to end, and then they act rationally. And that's exactly what happened in their case. Yeah. Well, and I think that that you make a good point um, with that. I I really do. Um, So the the point that you made is, you know, the words we choose is important. I remember speaking with a a gentleman once, and we were talking about um, a woman who had a very difficult divorce, and there was abuse involved. And the person who was commenting said, well, you know, I, I love this phrase. She just needs to get over it. My wife and I had a very contentious divorce, and now it's two years later and we're best of friends. <laughs> and I thought, Right, no. and, that's, and, and that's what I'm saying. What, what, what is, what is the, the basis for the contentiousness? You know, in, in the Flay divorce, there was the alleged adultery. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's the sort of bitterness that you get over. Uh, when someone's abusing you and then the physical abuse or emotional abuse ends and then the legal abuse begins, it's very difficult, number one, to get over it because you want it to end. That's what happened in my book. Chris, the, the book was about Chris Mackney. He he was trying to settle that divorce, the entire divorce, and his ex-wife, who was mostly perpetuated by her dad, kept pushing it forward in order to keep him in the court process. There, there was nothing to get over. He couldn't leave the divorce. And so when you when you say contentious, it sort of implies that you have two people who are warring with each other, and that's generally not what happens. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And certainly and, that's and as a result, not. And certainly that is right, well, appears that that's not what happened in the in the Sonomi case. Um, right in the Sonomi case, I just want to lay out the evidence. In 2010, Child Protective Services confirmed that he had abused his kids. He actually had only this is Omar. He only had supervised visitation for several years because they had they had validated the abuse. In 2015, there was another incident where he pinned one of his kids up against the wall. They took the child to the emergency room. They found a contusion where he said he was pinned. There's a police report. Um, the evidence of abuse is overwhelming. You, you know, it's it's remarkable. If you took this into criminal court, you'd have the mother and all three of her children saying there's abuse. That would be that would probably be enough for re, beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet here in civil court, where it's the preponderance of the evidence, and that's 50.1%, whatever that means, but it's certainly a much lower than, than reasonable doubt, they're saying that there's no evidence of abuse. In reality, the evidence of abuse is overwhelming. Omer Simone is an abuser, and that is the reason that this quote-unquote contentious divorce went on for as long as it did. And the media mis, misportrays what's going on and makes it yeah. seem like you have two warring parties. Yeah, good, very good point. So in this particular case, Dad had only supervised visitation for a long time, and yet, and yet, for some reason, this particular judge, when it came before her, chose to interpret this as Dad was a great man, not just a, a good enough right. man, but a great man, and, and punished these children for not wanting to go to somebody who has hurt them. Um, right, and, and her her quote-unquote revolution, if you will, began coincidentally or not when he got a new lawyer named Kerry Middleditch who just happened to be a colleague of this judge's when they were both in the district attorney's office. So either coincidentally or not, but her evolution towards her father, their father being a great man just happened to coincide with him getting a lawyer who happened to be a former colleague of hers, who comes in front of her a lot. So either that's wow. the biggest coincidence in the world, or a favored attorney was making an argument that she suddenly recognized. Okay, let's go through the chronology here. Um, so this mm -hmm. happened last year that these kids were sent to detention. I believe they right. stayed in, and, and we're talking in, at the time, a 9, 10, and 15-year-old. These are not mm -hmm. juvenile delinquents. These are regular right. kids. They were doing and, fine and in school. They, they were doing fine socially. Yeah, none of them had ever committed a crime. And how long did they spend in juvenile detention facilities? They only spent a couple of weeks, but that's not because of any – that's not – that wasn't the plan from the judge. Basically what happened was uh, almost as soon as this happened, Maya then went to the media and, and then – then the media broke it, and within a few days, it was an international firestorm. You know, both of these, both of the parents have roots in Israel, so it's covered in Israel. But it was basically, you could probably find newspapers out in Australia and television stations talking about it. So she becomes an international pariah, and then she backs away, and she sends them to some sort of a summer camp. And I, I don't think it was like, I don't think it's like a regular summer camp. I think this is more of like a quote-unquote therapeutic summer well, camp. Well, wasn't it a unification then, camp? That comes later. Then, okay. quietly, she decides to then send them to this quote-unquote reunification therapy, which isn't really therapy because it's done by a woman named Dorothy Pooter. And the reason it's not really therapy is because Dorothy Pooter has nothing more than a high school education, so she can't be a therapist. All right, She doesn't have the education to be considered a therapist. And then it's this intense, quote-unquote, intensive reunification therapy where 
just like Judge Gorsica, she refers to the kids as cult-like. And that's when you the when you get into this parental alienation terminology, and this is this is what the judge and, and many of the professionals all accuse the mother of doing is quote unquote alienating Omer Simone. In conjunction with that is this idea that the kids are cult like, whatever that means. So Pruder was advancing this and then also she tried to quietly she she changed custody without really officially changing custody, but she put then put the kids into the sole custody of the father and the mother didn't see the kids for well over six months. And this was the the woman who had primary custody of these children mm-hmm. for all these and years. Is, and then and all then of a remember, sudden, this is a man. This is a man who wasn't even allowed to see the kids without a supervisor for years because Child Protective Services had confirmed that he was in fact abusing them. So suddenly, not only is he not seeing them unsupervised, but he's the only he he has sole custody. That means they're in his custody at all times. She wasn't even allowed to send them emails, text messages, letters. She wasn't allowed to have any contact with them whatsoever. The impression that I get, Michael, when I hear cases like this is um, a mother, a a father does something egregious, whether it's sexual Mm -hmm. abuse of his child or whether it's uh, Mm -hmm. uh, hitting his children or being abusive. A father does something egregious, and it's documented. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the ones where it's he said, she said, but there is documentation as there was in this case. Right. But right. And normally, healthy people do not want to spend time and be around people who hurt them. That's a healthy right. response. Yet somehow right. these children who say they mm-hmm. do not want to be around this person who hurt them are only mm-hmm. saying it because their minds have been poisoned. Who could poison their minds except mother? And so we're going to except punish mother. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. that's correct. And, and like I said, I can document it when, when the mother is, is the, the aggressive one. But that's, that, that's neither here nor there. When you have what, what I refer to as parental alienation ideologues, so what I call a parental alienation ideologue, and it's the same as, as a conservative ideologue and a liberal ideologue. And, and what I mean by that is that person has already gotten to the finish line, and then, then they arrange the facts to fit their their preconceived conclusion. So those kinds of folks cannot see any reason why any child would reject the parent no matter what that parent has done. If the child has rejected the parent, it's the other parent's fault no matter what. I did a case out in Connecticut. Angela Hickman, her ex-husband, Angelo, so it's Angela and Angelo, beat her, was convicted of beating her, and yet, after a while, the court said it was parental alienation. So here's a man who not only beat her, but he was actually convicted of it. How much more evidence do you need than the guy pleading guilty? All right? So there is no question he beat her. He pled guilty to it. And yet they still said parental alienation. So the folks who are ideologues in favor of parental alienation, there's no amount of evidence if you have a videotape, they'll say it only happened once. If you have three, they'll only say it happened three times. And, and that it happened 12, because of her. <laughs> right, correct, correct. And that's like the, the, the abusive personality. That's how, they, that, that's how they justify it in their mind. But to an ideologue, there is no amount of evidence which is enough. And by the way, and this is very important, in civil court, it's the preponderance of the evidence. And why is that? Because nobody's talking about putting old Mayor Simone in jail. All right? So we don't need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt because we're not talking about putting him in jail. We're talking about children's safety. And I didn't know that in order to protect children, before we can do that, we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt they're in jail. I didn't know that was the standard. You know, you have three kids and their mother, the police, Child Protective Services, and an ER, all giving you evidence of abuse, and the court saying that's not enough. If that's not enough, how much is enough? You know, I'd love to tie, you know, somehow travel in a time machine with these people before video and, and see what, what evidence would have been enough in the late 1800s without video. Well, yeah. how much is enough? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Two ideologues, exactly. two, two ideologues 
if a kid doesn't like the parent, it must be the other parent's fault, period. Yeah. There is no other option. And that's right. why they do it. And look, the, this woman, and that, I don't believe this woman, Lisa Gorsica, is, a, is an ideologue. I think it's, it's much more cynical than that because they covered two other cases where the woman was saying they were alienated and she dismissed it out of hand. So she's not some hero for parental alienation anyway. I covered a case with Janelle Egan where the, where the father was, was behind her back undermining her and she was asking the court to get the father to stop and the court refused to intervene. So, you know, that's ironically enough what she went way, you know, she, she bent over backwards for Omer Simonia when it was Janelle Egan in basically the same situation. She could care less. And there's another one with Susan Wellington where they, they switched custody on her without actually sw- – they switched custody in every way except officially, meaning that suddenly he just – her ex just took the kid and refused to give him back. And she was screaming about parental alienation, and uh, Gorsica just could care less. So uh, she's yeah, not really an ideal. Yeah, wait a minute. Gorsica is believing parental alienation if it's the father who's the alleged victim, but not if Cor- it's the mother. Well, and, that's, and that's also – not all ideologues of parental alienation, but many ideologues of parental alienation only think that the father can be alienated. That's another great point. Now, I don't know if that's what's in her mind. I think it's much more cynical than that. I think she believes it's parental alienation because her good friend, Carrie Middleton, is saying it. I think it's much more cynical than any ideological thing. I think her good friend is making an argument, and she's buying the argument because it's her good friend. I think if Carrie Middleton was was Maya's attorney, she'd be just as favorable towards Maya as she was towards Omer. I think this is more just really old boys club type stuff. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's get back with this chronology here. So these kids spent a couple, a f- couple of weeks at least in juvenile detention, and then they were sent to some uh, iffy summer camp. Right, but all, camp, it's only a couple of weeks judge... because of international news pressure. They might still be in juvenile detention if not for the international outcry. Yes. But yes, a couple of weeks. Um, so, um, yeah, and and I keep thinking of all the cases that I have heard where there isn't this publicity, where there isn't the the outcry um, that just right. are like you know, quiet desperation. You know, um, right. like Angela so, Hickman. Her, yeah. her two kids are with somebody, their abuser right um, now for over a year. Somebody, um, yeah, yeah, okay. And you emailed me a, a situation um, yesterday where the same thing was happening in another case. And I think that it happens so frequently. And we just, right. uh, we a as a general two, public. 2007 survey by the Leadership Council for Interpersonal Violence, which found that 58,000 children per year, based on the survey, that's obviously not an exact number, that's their estimate based on the survey, are handed to their abuser every year by family course in the United States of America. Now, the president of that organization is Dr. Joyce Silberg. So for, for the same article for Capital Research Center, it's called Making Divorce Pay. I asked her, I said, what's the primary reason for this number? And she said it's this bogus uh, parental, this bogus painting the, the protective parents as, as having PADS, which is parental alienation syndrome, which is basically the same thing as parental alienation. But, but in layman's terms, it's this false idea that, that an abuser is actually, that, that the protective parent, rather than protecting their kids, is, is pouring into the kids' heads false allegations of abuse, which the kids then parrot. So that, that, that falsely, and it's ironic, it's like a falsehood of a falsehood. So basically courts ignoring abuse in favor of the idea that kids are being coached. And let let me say this, and I've said this before. There is no epidemic of kids falsely alleging that parents are abusing them. That happens, but there is no epidemic of that. There is an epidemic, of course, ignoring real allegations of abuse and claiming it's coaching. The epidemic is the falsely accusing people of coaching, not the false accusations. Yeah. So, okay, so let's get back to our chronology here. And also, if you would like to call in and join our conversation, the chat line is open, and our guest call-in number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. 
Okay, so these kids then get out of of, uh, um, the kitty jail and then they get uh, put into some sort of camp this whole time mother and none of mother's family can see them even though that's the person that they've been living with for all these years Um, then they get shipped to this reunification thing which uh, I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I view that as kind of remember when they used to send back in the 50s they used to send gay people to camps to realign their sexuality Um, I mean that's what it reminds me of it's like, right, no, no, this the, isn't reality. You just think this is reality, um, and we're going right, to convince the, you that. Right. The irony is, so they claim that these kids are in a cult, so what are they here for five days? I think this, this reunification therapy was five days. Your father is a great man. He's not abusing Your father is a great man. He's not abusing you. Your father is a great man. He's not abusing you. What does that sound like? That sounds like a cult. So <laughs> yeah, the same exactly. people who accuse the kids of a cult then drill into their heads cult-like ideas. So, yeah, yeah, no, for five days, all they hear is your father's a great man, he's not an abuser. Your father's a great man, he's not an abuser for five days. Uh, yeah, that's, in order crazy to to, that's crazy making. That's crazy-making behavior. That's crazy-making. Right, that's, right. Uh, that's, I'm, your reality isn't really real. Um, and, right. and that's just a way to screw people up very, very readily. Um, okay, right. so then how long did they have to spend with this at this this reunification therapy? And five, I use that five, phrase. Five, day, five days, and then they five spent days. And to then live where with did they dad. go? To their dad. And then they had to go live They're, with their dad. They, so that's all. Let's say August, late July or August of 2015, I believe, was when they started living with their father, and they kept living with their father till about March of 2016. And then at that point, with a, and Gorsica then leaves the, then in the meantime, the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission, which is the governing body over judges, they begin investigating this case. They come out with their official, uh, their official accusation. I don't remember the technical term for it. They basically officially accuse Judge Gorsica of wrongdoing in December of 2015. That spawns her to leave the case. So she says, since I'm being accused of wrongdoing by the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission, uh, that cr- that creates the appearance of impropriety if I'm staying on the case. So she remo- she recuses herself. A new judge comes in, and then about three months later, this new judge, Joan Young, she changes it to 50-50 custody, and then a couple of weeks later, they settled, and now the mom has primary custody again. So Judge Gorsica did all of that, and about a year later, we're back at basically the exact same position we were in when all of this got started. Okay. So with all of this stuff, I mean, I I would make a case that the court is obliged to pay for those children's psychiatric treatment for now for the rest of their lives after being screwed up by that kind of a mess for a year. Um, Right. So it's very, very difficult to sue a court, but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's part of this whole thing, isn't it? Um, I, right. I, when you were talking about that, we had a case in Washington several years ago, Washington State, where I am, and um, a girl was um, sexually molested by her father. The mm-hmm. mother found out that her daughter had, been, you know, I mean, the the mother got the report from school. Their daughter was behaving in this way. Mother takes her to the doctor. Doctor says, yes, she's been sexually abused. Um, they take her to a shrink. Yes, yes, yes. It looks like dad is the the culprit. Mom files for divorce, goes to court. Court says, well, you're just doing this to be vindictive because you never said anything about him sexually abusing children before you filed for divorce. Well, duh. Right. Anyway, long story short is they ended up giving custody of the girl to the father, who then Mm -hmm. moved in with his father, who had served time in jail for child molestation. And that, according to the court, was just fine. That was much better than her living with his mother. That girl, the moment she... And this this gets back into these parental alienation ideologues, that the only abuse they see is parental alienation. So, uh, you know, you move in with a child molester, that's not abusive. You hit your kid, that's not abusive. But uh, if there's any hint that they think there's parental alienation, that's the abuse. And so all of this other stuff is minor. What we have to do is keep the kids away from the abuser, and the abuser, so to speak, is the person they think is alienating the child. Uh, and so that's yeah. part for the course. Uh, you know, that, that's why Angela Hickman, who is the victim of abuse, 
where the victimizer pled guilty to abuse can't see her kids because in that court's mind, the only abuse they recognize is the parental alienation. What, and maybe you can't answer this question, maybe nobody can answer this question, but I hear of these situations so frequently where just that case, that kind of a viewpoint comes up where you can hear these egregious things that one parent has done, and yet mm-hmm. the court will view this one other thing that they perceive the other parent has done as being so much more egregious that mm-hmm. it's okay to remove this child. Right. What What is the thinking process that goes on in someone's mind where they can, I mean, to me, I'm not a judge, thank God I'm not a judge, but mm-hmm. if I heard, I mean, if I don't know, okay, I see this man and I think he's a great man, and I see this woman and she's saying all this stuff about him, and I'm thinking, well, maybe she's not so great, but, but then, you know, I don't know. It seems to me caution is in order not just a rash decision that I don't believe the woman I'm going to give to Right, right. You're, you're thinking they're making the wrong decision. Look, there's so many cases, there is no one monolithic reason. The first thing you need to understand is there's a lot of money. There's a whole industry behind parental alienation. So a lot of people get paid if a judge says parental alienation. Immediately you got one or two therapists, one or two parental parenting coaches, one or two reunification therapists, one or two evaluators. By saying the word parental alienation, you've brought on a whole plethora of court professionals. Look, in this case, I think it's because her good friend, Carrie Middleditch, was saying it. But, um, you know, depending on the case, it it depends. In in Angela Hickman's case, as a result, there were seven court professionals. See, look, if you say you're an abuser, Angela, this last name is Gizzy, Angela Gizzy, you're the abuser. So the only way we're going to let you see the kid is with a supervisor then the court is out of it. If they're saying, well, there might be parental alienation, well, then we need an evaluator. We need a therapist. We need two parenting coordinators, and that's what happened. And I covered other cases. Susan Skip, these are, both these cases are out of Connecticut. She, when she was accused of parental alienation, seven court professionals. Sonny Kelly, who's out of Connecticut, 12 court professionals. So it's not, they're not thinking about the kids. They're thinking about the cash no. register for themselves and their colleagues. Who is it? I, was it Barry Goldstein? Somebody uh, what, that I was reading recently said that we ought to hold uh, lawyers to the same standard that we hold um, uh, medical professionals to, to, that we hold doctors to. Doctors supposedly take the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great idea. We ought to make lawyers and judges make that kind of an oath. Um, right, but they would never no follow harm. it, so who cares? Who cares? They never yeah, follow that's it. that's true. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Um, the other point uh, that you're bringing up about the money behind this, um, I had a comment uh, 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 as feedback on the, the promo for this show, and someone said all of these juvenile detention facilities are being run independently, privately now. They are money-based, mm-hmm. money-earning-based things. Mm-hmm. Was the judge lining someone's pocket? Well, that's right. a lead that, that based might on what be, I've read. That might be. But, I didn't find it with Gorsica. However, Children's Village comes up with the cases in that county a lot. So I'm not sure if I haven't found a connection to Gorsica. And by the way, I shouldn't be the one who finds that connection. All right. Yeah. The, when this thing broke, the media in that area should have at some point said, is this the only case? that's controversial with Gorska. I found three more. I live in Chicago. Why is no one in Detroit finding that? They could have expanded this, and they could have found the connection to Children's Village. But I believe the connection to Children's Village is more with the county itself and with all of the judges sending it there, sending to Children's Village. Yeah. Well, I think that you bring up a good point. I'm, I'm a little long in the tooth, and my undergraduate degree is in journalism. And journalism has changed. It's changed dramatically, mm-hmm. some of it for the right. better, some of it not. And I mm-hmm. think that, that the days of trying to uncover and draw connections, it, mm-hmm. it's, a dif- it's, it's difficult to find journalism I, that's practiced I, that way anymore. The, right. The best example is all the president's men in Watergate. You know, so people think yep. Watergate was a break-in. I, that they did break into the hotel in Watergate. Watergate was a series of dirty tricks perpetuated yeah. by the committee to reelect Richard Nixon, which 
Woodward and Bernstein discovered by first looking into this break-in. And that's exa- what, what I was saying about the media in Detroit doing, that's exactly what Woodward and Bernstein did. They started tracking these dirty tricks after this initial dirty trick. They went for the money in Mexico. They, they came back. Every time they found a name, they tried to find the people around him and keep searching and keep digging until they found a, it was basically a tactic of dirty tricks. And that's what Watergate is. That's exactly what those guys did. Anyone in the Detroit media could have done this. And by now, we would have exposed the entire county court system, maybe Children's Village with it. Yeah, which we know is not a unique case. Right. People who, who you know, I mean, it doesn't take much. I mean, I'm out here in Seattle, and I did a little mm-hmm. research, and boom, 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 I found three or four cases in that mm-hmm. same area. Right. Right. So I, I, I found three other cases with that same judge. Again, if a judge sentences three kids to jail for not having lunch with their father, somebody might think, well, if they did that, they probably didn't do it in a vacuum. They might have done other stuff like this before. You know, one of the cases I, I described was Deborah Flowers. She's been in jail six times because of Gorsica, because of the divorce, all right? This woman is getting divorced, and Gorsica keeps sending her to jail, all right? But none of the media in Detroit wants to, wants to expose that. All right? A woman keeps being sent to jail because she's getting divorced. And nobody seems to care. That's far more egregious than anything that happened in the Simone case. And the difference is, number one, Maya was able to get this to the media. Number two, Maya has money. Maya Simone, that is. Deborah Flowers, all of her money was taken by the divorce, so she can't fight back. Yeah. And, and they that's don't expose the way it is. that. They don't, care. they don't care. And then, look, I've exposed it. They could have referenced these cases every time they talked about this judge. They refuse to look beyond it. They refuse to look at other judges. Um, you know, my investigation dug far deeper than the investigation of any Detroit media at all. Yeah, crazy. It's crazy. And, again, I point out that this isn't even just Michigan. This is happening right. all over, and it's right. not getting the attention. I mean, I'm delighted that the Sonoma children got the attention because, again, let's head back there. Since they had to go to reunification camp, since uh, this kind of all broke open, what has happened? They're back in the same position they were in before all this started. So everything Gorsica has done, you're now back. You've done a full 360. She changed custody from one parent to the other, and now it's back to the original parents. So if well, and I think ever, it's if, important to point out that the egregiousness, and she didn't just change custody, she completely lopped off they had been correct. living well, with. And also, look, she didn't technically change custody because you have to have an evidentiary hearing. She just, told the, she just told the dad and the kids that you're now living together. She really technically didn't change. She technically didn't change custody. She did it in every other effective way. It's complete, what she did was completely illegal, totally unconstitutional, and beyond all of the bounds of the, the way the law is supposed to work. Um, but, so, yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah. So, yeah. so but she's getting her comeuppance. Um, just, was it her, just yesterday, the judicial yeah, review? Yesterday, uh-huh. Right. So the, the, the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission, in, in December of 2015, they give their, their formal accusation. Then they held a trial at the beginning of June, and just yesterday – they held it in front of a retired judge, and uh, so he he found her guilty of all but one count. And uh, essentially, the 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 two main things that he found wrong was number one, she violated the two due process right. That's in the Fourteenth Amendment, due process. She violated the due process rights of all three children when she sentenced them to juvenile hall. And number two, she lied about her behavior to the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission. I talked to a lawyer about this. When she, you know, the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission, they file their complaint, she files her response. That's an under oath response. So when you file your response to the MJTC, you're under oath. So when you lie, that's perjury. So that's a very serious offense. Then How did she that, lie in the response? What what did she say in her response that was a that lie? She, that she claimed that she didn't really send them to jail, that she claimed that she wasn't calling them crazy, that 
Uh, all of these things that are on the record that she did, she claimed she didn't do it. I mean, these lies are ridiculous, all right? I didn't really send them to juvenile hall. That wasn't, that wasn't punitive. Uh, when on the record, are you going to be, you're going to be going to the bathroom in front of people? Of course, all of it was punitive. The, the motion, the Charles Manson motion, she claimed, no, I was just saying I'm going forward. She was lying about her behavior during that June 24th hearing. So that is very serious. Judicial misconduct is extremely serious. Lying about what you did is even more serious. And then beyond that, she also was found to not have acted in a judicial manner by screaming at the kids, by demeaning the kids. Uh, and all of these things, you know, to a layman, some of these other things are more serious. Within the judicial framework, I think lying to the Michigan Judicial Commission, that's where that it's over. You can't commit perjury on that kind of document. Uh, so now it's very important the judge found this. That doesn't, her punishment is still not set. Now what happens is she's going to now go in front of the Michigan Supreme Court and the Michigan Supreme Court will dole out punishment. And she could still get a slap on the wrist. But based on the findings of the judge, it's hard to believe she's going to only get a slap on the wrist. I, I think she's either going to be suspended or just expelled. Wow. Um, well, you know, I mean, I I know what I'm rooting for. <laughs> but, right. No, okay. look, if it's me and I see her on the other end of a McDonald's counter, I'm moving to another re register. If it's me, I don't trust her to take my order at McDonald's, but that's me. Well, uh, as you, you mentioned, know, there's money the, behind these kinds of attitudes. So I doubt that she's going to be reduced to going to McDonald's or to working at right, McDonald's. Yeah. I mean, she's, Right. No, I understand. You know. Forget being a judge. I wouldn't trust her to properly take my order at McDonald's. But that's uh, right. She's absolutely not fit for the bench. She. I don't know what her issues are. I. I it's anecdotal because there's only four cases. But I. I think when you find four cases where there's clear bias against the woman, there's a strong indication that this woman has a clear bias against women. What. What the reason is that's for a shrink to figure out. But. Yeah, now there's serious issues with this judge. She's jailing a woman six times as part of a divorce for things yeah. like, you know, one time she jailed her, she called it perjury because she misspelled uh, one of the street addresses, and she called it perjury. All right? Yeah. You know, it's things like that. You don't send people to jail because they misspell a street. Uh, but she, well, she does. You know, um, uh, last week on our program, we had um, uh, Karen Huffer, who uh, is starting a program at John Jay in, in New York on equal access advocates. And I just mm -hmm. am in love with this idea. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take this course. She's training mm -hmm. people who will then be certified by John Jay um, as mm -hmm. advocates to go into court um, with mm -hmm. people who have an ADA recognized disability, PTSD, right. chronic anxiety, mm -hmm. or acute anxiety and chronic depression are ADA-recognized psychiatric disabilities. So right. she's training people to go into court with people, not just in domestic violence situations, I mean, there are other things mm -hmm. as well, um, but that's what I'm thinking of right now, to help women with things like this. Um, right. And, and, and I just... Sure. Wouldn't just be women. It wouldn't just be women. And it wouldn't just be family court. Uh, Dr. Well, you're Huffer, right. You're right. Uh, but statistically, right. it is it is primarily sure. women when you're talking to men. I'm not sure. Right? That's not what she said to me. Well, but, I can send you uh, citations. I've actually, I can send you citations on that. I've, one, a, I've actually asked her. I've I've asked her the question. Her her work is much more expansive than just women or family yes, court. Yes, absolutely. But she coined. She coined the term legal abuse syndrome, which is a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that you get right. as a result of being legally abused. And so right. what, she's, what she's training people to do is be advocates of those who have been legally abused. And, uh, and look, that, well, this no, it goes the deeper than that because it, 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 goes, um, it, it goes under the um, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, what she's doing. So it goes a little deeper than what right, you're talking correct. about. Right, correct. Post-traumatic stress disorder is, is legally recognized. And as I said, Chris Mackin yep. suffers from legal abuse syndrome. And he, he killed himself ultimately because he became so overcome with fear of the next yes. 
sports hearing that he could no longer yep. live, that he, that he couldn't think about anything else. And, yeah, and that absolutely. was the reason he killed himself. Yeah. And, then, right, and, that, and that is a recognized the subject of your, disorder. Your book, Michael. This was the subject yeah. of your book, so go ahead and plug your book again, would you? Yeah, it's bullied to death, Chris Mackney's Kafka-esque divorce. But he he did, uh, he suffered from legal abuse syndrome. He was in court, I think, 53 times over the course of five years. It's almost one, once a month. Yeah. But, yeah, no, you, you go through anxiety, restlessness, you can't sleep, depression. Uh, the, the court process, when you suffer from legal abuse syndrome, it consumes you. You think about nothing else. You, you, know, you can't watch yeah. a ball game. You can't enjoy the weather. You can't enjoy anything. All you can think about is the court process. It's, it's debilitating. It's absolutely horrible. You know, it's different slightly than the, the conventional PTSD, like the war-related PTSD. So what happens with war-related PTSD is the soldier comes back, and they're here in the U.S. in body, and in their mind, they're still in the war. But what, what happens is they do everything they can not to think about the trauma. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much alcoholism and drug abuse with, with soldiers, because that, it's they're self-medicating to stop them from thinking about the, the war trauma. With legal abuse syndrome, you're obsessed with the trauma. So it's like you're picking at your mental scab. You just keep picking at that mental scab. The thing because it never goes away. Depress, correct. The thing that depresses you, the thing that gives you anxiety, the thing that gives you depression, that's all you can think about. With soldiers, it's almost the exact opposite. They try to do anything they can not to think about the war, which is which is traumatic in another way. But this is even worse, and it's sort of like a a lower grade PTSD but for a much longer period of time. You know, there's a reason why soldiers are taken out of the battlefield. You, know, you don't have a soldier who's there for five years because that would just be brutal. Uh, yeah. You know, With legal abuse, five years, ten years, seven years in the court system, and you're not allowed out, and this is what Karen Huffer, Dr. Huffer, is trying to advocate for, to yeah. get people like so, this And out. I think that that, you know, I mean, for these women who get, uh, for these people, okay, um, who get dragged into court over and over and over again, um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, one of these legal uh, abuse or, or equal access advocates might be really helpful. So I'm really rooting for that program. Um, right, look, so I've, what I've about... What I was going to say is I've been sued. It's very uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable to be sued. And And if you can't get away with it, plus if you're adding the additional pressure of custody of your children. You know, Michael, I had a a Denver family court judge uh, on my show once. I spoke with her, and I said, please tell me what goes through a judge's mind when he or she um, sees documented domestic violence and yet will give custody to that parent. And I'll never mm-hmm. forget her response. She said, well, you've got two people in front of you, and one is frantic and, one, and, and all frazzled and right. can't even keep her own mm-hmm. life in order, and you've got another one who's in charge and in control. So if the domestic violence mm-hmm. isn't that bad, we'll give the children to him. And I went, you're right. kidding me. You're kidding that's me. That's actually correct. thought process? Right. Right. The, 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 the abuser is cool, calm, and collective. The abused victim is frantic. Because that's what abusers that's do. <laughs> right. That that's a uh, that's a complete misreading of the situation by the judges. It's really interesting that the judge would admit that. Uh that's a total misreading of the situation. But yeah, no, and it's not surprising that they would see it that way. And that's correct. Look, I've I've talked to well over a thousand people who suffer from one form of PTSD or another. And mm-hmm. there's a fine line between PTSD and just being crazy. And sufferers of PTSD, if you don't know that they have PTSD and if you're not familiar with it, you're easily going to think they're just crazy. They're not, yeah. you know, you're, you're not going to recognize that the things they're doing are manifestation of the trauma. You're just going to think they're crazy. It's yeah. absolutely yeah, true. Exactly. You don't have experience with it. Yep, exactly. And I think that, you know, Karen's work should help, I think, um, acknowledge at least or hopefully help minimize minimize that misunderstanding, that, that un, you know, disconnect. But you were talking right, earlier well, about judges' training, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is I understand that judges are trained differently in different districts and in different states. Um, mm-hmm. I 
went through a guardian ad litem training a couple years ago here in Washington State, and we actually are pretty good when it comes to domestic violence kinds of responses with our police mm-hmm. and with our judges, depending on what county you're in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I was astounded at astounded at the lack of understanding when it came to talking about parental alienation at this right. organization. Right. So, so what, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that concept. So, um, I, it's number one. It's the it's the most dangerous concept in family court. It's the most misunderstood concept in family court. So, first of all, are there parents who, despite a court order, still keep their kids away from the other parents? Absolutely. Are yeah. there parents who fight to keep their kids away from the other parents? for specious reasons. In Chris Mackney's case, he didn't send in a receipt once and his ex-wife went into court and said that's a good enough reason to keep him away from the kids. So uh, are there parents who do that? Absolutely. The first thing is called custodial interference. The second thing is called contact denial. Are there parents who badmouth the other parent? Absolutely. And that's called badmouthing. Are there parents who lie about the other parent? Absolutely. And that's called lying. So those are, those are all of the quote-unquote behaviors and many more which are part of this basket of parental alienation. But my problem with parental alienation is, number one, there's no one agreed-upon definition. All of the so-called definitions are so vague and so nebulous, they can mean anything. Turning your child against the other parent. Well, what does that mean? What am I doing to turn my child against the other parent? Yeah, like in the Simone case, the, the, the children are saying, Father hurt me. He hurt me. Right. They're not. So mom doesn't have to do anything to turn that child against dad. Nobody wants to be with somebody who hurts them, whether it's your parent or not. Correct. If you're supposed to see your child on Wednesday and the other parent keeps them away, that's pretty specific. Uh, That's called custodial interference. That's pretty specific. That's easy to recognize. Turning the child against the other parents, I don't know what that means. What Mm -hmm. behavior is it? So... Because it's nebulous, because it's broad, anything can be parental alienation. The other thing is there's no rules of evidence. If you're accused of being a parent alienator, it's not like they're going to, the other side then gives you discovery and you go to trial. No. It's a wild, wild west. They'll do whatever they want. They'll just deem you the parent alienator, throw in reunification therapy, throw in custody evaluation, throw in this, throw in that, and suddenly you, the ball is rolling. There's no due process. There's no rules of evidence. There's none of it. So because it's broad, anything can be. You know, I was watching a program, and this, this woman who's a proponent of parental alienation said, you know, something as simple as giving the kid a toy before they go see the other parents is parental alienation. So are you kidding? What? Everything is parental. You can't, you can't give your kid a toy? Okay, well, then everything is parental alienation. You see it everywhere. It becomes like the boogeyman. Every behavior you know, there's an is expression, parental alienation. Michael, there's an expression that I, I like to use. When you're a hammer, everything is a nail. <laughs> right. That's correct. That's, that's the thing about these ideologues. All they see is parental alienation. And when the judge is the ideologue, that becomes a really big problem because they see it all as parental alienation, so there's nothing that you can do or say. And the problem with abuse mixed with parental alienation, the ideologue, the more you talk about abuse, the more they're convinced it's parental alienation. They don't see anything else, and that fits part of their pattern, because part of the pattern is, is planting these ideas in the kids' heads. So the more the kids say there's there's abuse, the more you say there's abuse, the more the ideologue says that must be parental alienation. And again, there's no, like, you proved it, you provided evidence of it. There's nothing that, I don't know what Omer Simone has said that Maya Simone has done specifically that's alienating. What he's saying is, I'm not an abuser, and because they're saying I'm an abuser, that must mean it's parental alienation. That's what he's saying. I thought that the whole concept of parental alienation had been discredited, um, but it has not, because they've changed it from a syndrome, which has a distinct medical and psychological mm-hmm. definition, 
it can't meet mm-hmm. that definition. So all they've done right. is they've stopped talking about parental alienation syndrome and just start talking mm-hmm. about it with other terminology, but it's the same thing that they're talking about. Right, and, and you I, can't this is, that. This is exactly what I exposed in that capital research piece. That's correct. It, it morphed. It started with parental alienation syndrome, which was backed by this guy, Richard Gardner, who's been discredited because he's at best, at best, a friend of child molesters and might be even worse. Um, yeah, once he was discredited, what they did was they just started talking about parental alienation, but, but all of the things that are in parental alienation were in parental alienation syndrome. So it's really just a marketing idea. But it's yeah. hard to, number one, I don't know how you discredit parental alienation because I don't know what it is. See, without a, <laughs> without a definition... How do you discredit something without a definition? I don't know what it is. Do parents turn their kids against the other parent? Yeah, no, they do. But in a specific case, I don't know what that means in any specific case. Turn the kid against the other parents. You know, if you say your mom, you know, if you say your mom just doesn't want to see you tonight, when in reality your mom got into an accident and they're stuck on the road, well, that's cold line. All right? Yeah. But turning them against the other parent, that's this like broad, nebulous concept. I don't know what that means. So Well in any I think uh, anyone who has actually raised children knows that yeah, you might be able to get them get mad, be mad at somebody for a moment, but kids are not you know, I mean <laughs> kids are, are not that malleable. <laughs> they right. really yeah, are not. Can, right. You you know, it's it, it, as uh, as one father told me, he goes, I have a hard enough time getting them to do their homework, getting yes. them to co- – trying to convince them their mother's a bad person is pretty much impossible. But that that's correct. Yeah, exactly. And well, and I, I've ha- always found it absolutely befuddling how mm-hmm. um, a, a court can believe that one parent has that much control over the other. I, I, I just don't right. understand. What they do is they – they bring in so-called experts. So in this case, was this guy, Bill Lanson. And by the way, most of these so-called experts, they're not really experts. This guy, Lanson, exactly. he's a divorce lawyer. What does he know about parental alienation? All right. So you have a divorce lawyer. He was a guardian ad litem on this case, but he's actually a divorce lawyer. All right. When you ask if you can ever get in front of them and say, what is your qualification to make these, uh, to make these diagnoses? They can't give you their qualification. I, they don't, you know, a divorce lawyer, that's the last person I want to tell me anything, okay? So this guy's Lancet is saying it. You got another therapist who comes in and says it, and that's it. That's the evidence that yeah. Lancet yeah. thinks and it is. And if one and parent doesn't have is. the same budget to hire the experts that the other one did, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in I this mean, case, it's the court, court-appointed experts, but that's. The problem is yeah, but they still get paid, experts, Michael. They still get paid. Right. Correct. But they're not really experts. A divorce lawyer is an expert oh, no. in nothing besides taking people's money. Okay? These yeah, therapists exactly. aren't exactly. really experts. None of these people are really experts. The other problem with specifically like a reunification specialist or a parental alienation specialist, these so-called experts, they have an inherent financial conflict of interest because they get paid in general the more the concept proliferates. So when they go into a case, they have a financial interest in finding parental alienation because they want to see that concept proliferate because then they get a lot of business. So if they find there's no parental alienation here, that hurts them in general. That's a huge financial conflict of interest. Okay, Michael, we're down to the wire here, and I want to get your input. Um, if a person out there is facing this kind of a uh, of a situation with a court, what do you recommend they do? And we've got one minute to say it. Yeah, it's very difficult. Uh, documents everything, and hopefully you got enough money for a sharp lawyer. And don't agree to any court professionals. Can you do that without getting uh, the the court upset with you, though? So hopefully, not necessarily, but yeah, look, if the court, in that courtroom, that judge does whatever they want. So if yes. the court wants to find parental alienation, there's almost nothing you can do to stop them. Yeah. It's sad situations, and they are happening all over the place. Uh, any word on how the Sonomi children are doing now? 
I haven't heard how they're doing now. They were doing terrible in their father's care. They were depressed. Uh, it was their grades were suffering. That experiment blew up as fantastically as it could. Now they're back in their mother's care. Uh, presumably they're doing better, but I, I can tell you for certain they were doing terrible while living with their father. Yeah, well, if they're, if they're, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Apparently, the yeah, only person right. who didn't well, make perfect yeah, sense was just when yeah. you're taken away from your caretaker and thrown in with a parent you barely yep. know, who you who you see as an abuser, it, that can be traumatic. You know, yep. it, it, Michael, it's, thank it's you so much for being with us. Our time, our time is up, and our show mm-hmm. is uh, on the way out. And I appreciate it. I hope sometime you'll come back and we can talk about more of these kinds of situations. Thank you so much. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.